Good morning. Uh, It's good to see you here today. Uh, If you're in the fellowship hall, good to see you there as well. I can't see you, but you can see me. And we're glad you're in the building and worshiping with us. Um, uh, if, uh, If this is your second time here, welcome back. Maybe last week was your first time worshiping with us. It was Easter, and it was really a wonderful celebration for those of you who were able to join us. Uh, It was great to be preaching among the Easter lilies. Uh, It was really fun to look out and see some interesting uh, headgear as well yesterday. Um, So some people broke out, you know, the bunny ears and other things that you probably don't know about, but this is from my perspective, I see it all. And uh, it was really just a great way to, uh, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection together. And obviously things are a little different today. Uh, Easter lilies put away, given away, hopefully. Um, I don't see as much headgear out there. Maybe the second service will surprise me a little bit. And, uh, and, and you were able to find a place to sit around 9 o'clock or 9.10, whatever, you know, whenever you showed up. No judgment, but kind of just kind of nice to have a little bit, a little bit of room. And, uh, and yet, here we are, uh, a, a week removed from, from Easter, and it would be tempting, maybe, and actually maybe somewhat of a habit, to just like put the resurrection of Jesus on the shelf for another year. Um, isn't it kind of odd that, that often the only time we talk about the resurrection in detail is on Easter? You know, you're kind of banking on a resurrection sermon on Easter Sunday, or maybe a funeral, Uh, Or maybe somewhere in between it pops up. But at least in our tradition, we often talk a lot about the importance of the death of Jesus on the cross and what that means for us. We don't talk a whole lot about the empty tomb and its implications for everyday life. Not just its implications when we're dealing with grief, certainly implications there, but, but implications for today, for the Sunday after Easter. And so what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to correct that imbalance by looking at one chapter in the Bible. Now, typically when we do a sermon series, we work our way through a book, but we're just going to camp out in one chapter for the next few weeks together. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this is considered to be sort of like the theological treatise on the resurrection of Jesus in the Bible. If you want to meditate on all of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a great place to go, which is why we're here. And at the same time, this is sort of an odd place to go when you think about 1 Corinthians 15. Because when we open up to 1 Corinthians 15, we're not opening up to a theological encyclopedia and looking under the letter R and finding resurrection. What we're opening up to is a letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in a city, uh, to the church in Corinth, a city in in Greece. And so basically, we're reading someone else's mail, and we're really reading a very late part of this letter. So chapter 15, there's 16 chapters. We're toward the end of this letter. And so to understand just how little unexpected this is, you have to understand the reason Paul is writing this letter. So we read in the book of Acts that Paul planted this church. He started this church in someone's home. He shows up in town. He starts preaching the gospel. People begin to become Christians. He stays there for a year and a half. He leaves. And after he's gone, some other folks move in and begin to teach them other things that Paul wouldn't have agreed with. And as a result, the church in Corinth has become something of a problem child. So if you just read through the letter, you you could develop a, a fairly healthy and sobering list of all of the ways 
that the Christians in Corinth have started to go off the rails. So we, we read, for instance, that they've formed cliques around the preacher they like best. I know that would never happen in the American church today, ever, for any reason, but it was happening then, so we can feel sorry for them. Uh, it was ha- so some were like, I, Apollos is my guy, and other people are like, no, no, Paul's my guy, and other people, somehow Peter worked his way in there, and like Peter has you know, a fan group as well. Uh, not only that, not only are they very clicky, but uh, they're also dealing with the sorts of things that I think many of us can relate with, and that is dealing with sexual sin. Um, This was a party culture, and what we learn in this book is it wasn't just a party culture out there. It was like in the church during the Lord's Supper. Uh, It turned into a a drunken party, and as a result, there were some people who never were even served the Lord's Supper because everybody else is eating the food and, and drinking the wine to excess. And There are other sins as well that we could talk about. What you need to know, though, is that here you have the apostle writing a letter to to Christians, people who profess Jesus, but who aren't living that way in every area of their lives. That's an understatement. And what Paul decides, at least at this point in the letter, is that what they need in order to follow Jesus in in this moment of their lives is not more rules. What they need is more of the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and that's what we're going to talk about for the next several uh, weeks, to get our minds around why it is that whether we feel like our, our life is sort of off the rails or whether we just feel like we need to get a fresh reminder, what it means for us not just to get more rules from the Bible, but from this chapter to get more of the resurrection and, and frankly, why that matters. So let's pray as we, as we start. Father, uh, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our hearts and open the, the eyes of our hearts that we might see wonderful things here and that we might understand more deeply even today why the resurrection of Jesus matters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I read an article a few weeks ago about a professor named Grant Shields, and uh, he was in the middle of teaching a class Actually, he was, he was uh, lecturing on, uh, of all things, the, the effect of stress on our memory, how stress can affect our memory. And as he's uh, teaching his class on the effects of stress on memory, uh, he's looking at his teaching assistant and went to say something to his teaching assistant and completely blanked on his name. This is somebody he had hired, somebody he knew, but in front of everybody, as he's preaching, as an expert on memory, the stress of the moment and everything else that he was going through caused him to go completely blank, which you can imagine was somewhat embarrassing. But it's certainly no more embarrassing than those of us who follow Jesus actually getting to a place in our lives where we've forgotten the resurrection of Jesus. Like, not forgotten that it's happened, forgotten that it matters. You see, when Paul wants to address in these Christians' lives what it looks like to, to, uh, to be a healthy Christian, to, to even begin to, um, uh, to work on those areas of their lives that need work, his reminder to them is that the resurrection matters. And what's interesting about this passage in particular is that he begins in verse one by saying, I want to remind you brothers or brothers and sisters. In other words, he's speaking to Christians. And what is he reminding them of? What does he say? I want to remind you of the gospel. That is the good news. 
Now, normally what follows from that in, in the way we often think about the gospel, as it should, is an exploration, exposition of the death of Jesus on the cross, that on the cross, Jesus died for our sins so that we might be forgiven by God and receive the righteousness of Christ. Yes and amen. Rightfully, that's where we go. But that's not the only place that Paul goes. In fact, he only goes there for a moment, and for the rest of the chapter, what he wants to talk about is not just the gospel of the empty cross. He wants to talk to us about the gospel of the empty tomb, why that matters today, why that matters for you today. And in order to understand what this gospel of the empty tomb is, let's think about what Paul says under two headings, the way in which the resurrection of Jesus gives us a new confidence and the way in which it gives us a new identity, a new confidence and a new identity. Uh, Paul begins this section by connecting the resurrection of Jesus to a new confidence that we can have that Jesus is at work within us. Notice what he says. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. He says, it's the gospel I preached to you, and it's the gospel you received. That is to say, Paul is encouraging them to remember the events of a few years ago when he showed up in their town and he preached the gospel, and they received it by faith and by implication were saved by the good news that Jesus had died for them as they embraced that message. But notice what he also says. He says, and it is that same gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. That is to say, the same gospel that saves us once and for all is also the gospel that continues to sanctify us. That the gospel that saves us is the same gospel that continues to sanctify us all the way up until the day in which Jesus returns or we go to be with him and are glorified forever. Now, just to unpack that a bit, I want us to appreciate the underlying assumption behind what Paul is saying here. That when he preached, they received the message, and even now they're being saved by this gospel. The underlying assumption is that Jesus is alive and well, right? He's not talking about Jesus as if Jesus is like, you know, a dead author we respect and we get to know him through his books. He's speaking in a way that assumes that Jesus right now is alive and well. It reminds us of something else Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This may be a verse that's familiar, uh, familiar to some of you. For I am sure or I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That he who began a good work in you, when you received the gospel, will bring it to completion. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Okay, now, I'm, I, I'm all for, you know, Christian world and life view. Okay, I'm all for it. I'm on board with that. But sometimes we can misunderstand what it means to be sanctified by the gospel if we just sort of prop up Christianity as a world and life view that helps us make sense of the world. It is that, but that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is Jesus, risen from the, from the grave, ascended to the Father, is alive and well and is at work in you now. Even as we open the word and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit sit under the word of God, he is at work in you now. 
Now, see, I, I need some of Paul's confidence here. And the reason I need it is because sometimes I look in and I look at my life and I don't come away with the conclusion that he who began a good work in, in me is bringing it to completion. What it feels like is sometimes Jesus began a good work in me and then at some point he was like, I took that, you know, just about as far as I could take it. You know, it's like the half-completed treehouse in my neighbor's backyard, right? Like someone had a great idea. Dad, would you build us a treehouse? Of course, get the plans and the lumber and all that. And they started, and at some point, Dad was like, treehouse is done. That's as much as you're getting, you know, you're getting a ladder and a platform. And I know you wanted more, but there's, I got nothing left. Um, Jesus doesn't get to that point with his people. He doesn't get to that point with you where he goes, well, I took you about as far as you're going to go. And that's, that's it. No, the promise we have in Scripture, not just in Philippians chapter 1, but also in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts might be opened so that we might see the immeasurable power of God's power which raised Jesus from the dead that is now at work in you. So the resurrection is a way in which we look to Jesus and we say, Yep, not on the cross anymore, not in the grave anymore, alive and well, and working in our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we have new confidence because of the resurrection, not just in the work Jesus does in us, but the work Jesus does for us. Now, thankfully, um, Paul doesn't do what I might be tempted to do, you know, um, when I bring up the gospel with you. Um, or bring up a topic I've talked to you about before, I'd say, well, just go download those sermons or, uh, or I'll send you my notes and you can review those. Um, Paul doesn't just do that. Instead, he goes, tell you what, let's just go through this again. Because he says, verse three, the things I delivered to you, past tense, we talked about this, that's what he's saying. These are of first importance. He's saying there's nothing else I could talk to you about that's more important than this, which is the work that Jesus has done for you. We talked about the work Jesus is doing in you. He's talking now about the work Jesus has done for you. And let's look at that together. As Paul does the review, let's do a review ourselves. Verse three, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. I want you to notice that phrase, Christ died for our sins. So the death of Jesus is an example to us of sacrificial love. Greater man has no love in this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Yes. And yet, it's more than that, right? It's, it's accomplishing something for us. Jesus died for our sins. He paid for our sins on the cross once and for all, past, present, and future. And it's worth just thinking for a second about the fact that the Corinthian sins, the ones we talked about a moment ago, are included in that list. Right? So their, their sexual sins, the fact that they're uh, abusing their bodies with substances, the way in which they're treating each other with cruelty, the way in which they're ganging up on Paul, the guy who planted the church, and all of the rest of what's listed in this letter, Paul has this in mind. He's speaking to them, and he's saying all of your sins, and he's saying to us, all of your sins paid for for Jesus on the cross. And then he goes on to say, and he was buried. In other words, it wasn't a fake death. He wasn't just woozy. He didn't just pass out. 
he was buried. He was dead. And, verse 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Raised on the third day. Resurrection of Jesus mentioned here as part of the good news of the gospel. Now, what follows from that, and really what Paul spends most of his time on as he's recounting these events, are the appearances of Jesus. So he goes on to say, and after he was raised, he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, to Simon Peter, then to the 12, the other disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, when Paul's writing this letter, some of them are still alive, and and then some of them have gone to be with the Lord. Then he appeared to James, that was most likely Jesus' half-brother, his earthly brother. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, to Paul. And we'll come to that in just a second. But isn't it interesting that Paul takes all this time to spell out a list of people who saw Jesus raised from the dead? Why would he do that? Well, I don't know if you had these on your SAT or ACT or standardized tests, but there used to be this analogy section in the SAT. So like apple is to orange as dog is to, I I, I don't know. I didn't do very well in that section apparently, but you know, it's like, You see the relationship here, and then you take that relationship here. Uh, Well, one person has said, um, the burial of Jesus is to his death as the appearance to Jesus is to his resurrection. That is to say, the burial tells us that Jesus' death really happened. The appearances tell us that Jesus' resurrection really happened. And I love the details that Paul gives us here to help work through that. So he says, for instance, that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Did you know that? That after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. And then he adds this note, most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you want to check my facts, I will give you a list of addresses. You can knock on their door and you can ask them. He also includes James. So James most likely the brother of Jesus, earthly brother of Jesus, which is an interesting ad as well. James would later become a leader in the church in Jerusalem, in the early church. But before, probably before this appearance, or like right up until this appearance, James was not actually a believer in his own brother Jesus. We read in John chapter 7 that Jesus' siblings uh, didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And so for Paul to include James just doubles down in this idea that here is a person who would have been very difficult to convince. And yet his encounter with the risen Christ completely turned his life around. And of course, Paul is on that list as well, someone who would need a lot of evidence to be convinced, and yet it turned his life completely around. That's why I I don't think it's accurate to say that To have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus is just to take like a leap in the dark. You've heard people say that before. Maybe that's the way you think about it, that to have faith in Jesus is just like a leap in the dark, a a leap of blind faith, we might say. But I think um, Paul is showing us here, it's it's more accurate to say that, that to trust in Christ and to have confidence that he's raised from the dead is more like a leap in the direction of the light, as one person has put it that we have good reasons for believing. We're not just shutting our eyes and turning off our brains and jumping. 
We have good reasons, Paul says here, to believe that Jesus really is the risen one, that the resurrection is real, that if we'd been among the 500, we would have seen him with our own eyes and heard him with our own ears. Um, And that means that if Jesus is raised from the dead, that we need to start paying attention to everything that he said and everything that he did. There may even be some of you uh, here today. Maybe you've been here for a couple weeks. Maybe this is your first time here. And, uh, but you've been wrestling with these things. You've been thinking about, could you take that leap toward the light? What would it look like for you to grapple with what Paul is saying here, that we can have new confidence in the gospel because of Jesus' work in us and for us? A few moments ago, we, we heard a testimony in the fellowship hall. I think it was on video, but here we heard it um, in, uh, in person from Brad. I mean, that's not a story of just someone you know, coming to a philosophical decision. That's a story of what Paul says uh, in the book of Acts that Jesus did for him. Jesus, Paul said, apprehended me. Jesus apprehended our brother living, active, saving, redeeming now. We can have confidence that Jesus works in us and for us. And secondly, we can have a new identity. Paul models for us something here that I think is really important for us to take away this morning, and that is that because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can make a clean break between who we were and who we are. Paul is very clear about who he was. Verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, he's, he's adding himself as the last link in the chain of, of those who met the risen Jesus. And by the way, this is interesting. I don't know if I even really thought about this until I looked into this passage a little more deeply. You know, we often think about Paul's Damascus Road experience where Jesus apprehended him. And um, you know, I don't know about you, but I often think of that as like, and maybe this is the children's Bibles, you know, just kind of not getting it quite right. I think of it often as, often as like a vision, right? That Jesus like appeared to him in a vision. But Paul is putting it in the category of the risen Christ meeting him in person, isn't he? In other words, it was Jesus himself appearing, risen, glorified to Paul, and it knocked him off his horse, and on and on it goes. But in the moment, Paul realizes, as he's writing this, that he's the last one. And as a result, he calls himself one untimely born. Now, the word there is a very strong word. The word there in the Greek is a very strong word to describe one untimely born. It means someone who's born not at the right time. And uh, Paul could mean a number of things by this. He could just be talking about the chronology of when he became an apostle, but it's also very likely this was an insult that was lobbed his way by his enemies in Corinth. He had some real enemies in Corinth, we learned from the, from the letter, who didn't really think he was up to snuff, and so there are many who may have called him one untimely born, uh, you know, sort of like a freak. Uh, that could be a reference to his physical appearance. Tradition tells us that, you know, Paul wasn't all that physically. Um, we think maybe he had a disability, at least 
at least poor enough eyesight that he tells us about some of that in his letters. Perhaps there's hints of that. Um, We also know at the beginning of the letter, as I said before, that there were factions, which is basically like a popularity contest. And to many, Paul just wasn't as charismatic as Apollos, or he didn't have sort of the pedigree of Peter. He's just kind of like Paul, like sad third place Paul, you know? And, uh, And so here in this moment in the letter, Paul is taking up the insults that have come his way and acknowledging many people see him this way. And in a way, he even owns them, right? Because he says, I really am unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is saying, um, in some ways, these insults are true. I really am out of my league. I really shouldn't be here because I wasn't just like, you know, mildly opposed to God. I was actively fighting him. I was an enemy of God's people. I was murdering Christians. You see, for Paul, who he was is never really that far from his mind. Even as he's talking about the grace of the gospel, he he doesn't just excuse who he was, right? So he doesn't just say, like maybe some of us do, when we're dealing with words we regret, and all of us, if we took a second, could think of words in our lives we've regretted saying, or things we've regretted doing, or decisions we wish we could take back. I mean, all of us come into this place with, with, uh, with a sense of, of shame and regret because of things that we've done? All of us do. And the question is where we go with that. And and some of us are encouraged by others or just it's the only way we get through. We just kind of move on. We're like, well, that, that was who I was then. I'm not really that way anymore. Or, so we excuse it, or we just never really forgive ourselves. We beat ourselves up over it over and over and over again. And we walk through life with that shame. Paul doesn't do either one of those things. On one hand, he is brutally honest about who he was. But he's also hopeful about who he is now. So as we think about this clean break between who we were and who we are, notice how Paul makes the turn, how he turns from who he was and the shame and regret associated with that and how he turns to who he is. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yes, it's true. The grace of God turned his life around. He deserved judgment. He deserved to be persecuted by the very God he was persecuting, and yet God showed him grace and favor. And yet there's more going on here that we need to unpack. When Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, what I am. This is an identity statement. This is, this is saying this is who I am now. And we should understand that in Paul's thinking about his relationship with Jesus, he's drawing on this idea that he has been united with Christ. So uh, when you become a Christian and you trust in Christ, what does that mean? Well, one of the ways to understand it and one of the ways that Paul often describes it as, is as union with Christ. So he'll say things like, we died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. So faith is like spiritual superglue. It superglues you to Jesus. So Paul will say things like, um, we, we saw it just a moment ago in our assurance of pardon. Uh, we have died with him. This is Colossians chapter two. You were dead in your trespasses, uncircumcision of your flesh. God made us alive together with him. Colossians three, verse one. If then you have been raised 
with Christ. Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him, past tense, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You see, this is all language that's reflecting the reality that we have been buried with Christ and raised with him. Present tense. And this seems odd to us because when we talk about the resurrection, what we normally think of is the physical resurrection that we will participate in one day by God's grace when Jesus returns to set all things right. Don't worry, we're gonna get there in 1 Corinthians 15. But right now we need to talk about present tense and present tense is that we are both physical and spiritual creatures and spiritually we have been united with Christ and raised with him to newness of life. And this is why this matters. Because it means that today you can have a real new identity without having to excuse your sin, without having to beat yourself up over it. Our new identity is the identity that we have with the risen Christ. It means that you are not defined by what you do, you are defined by what Jesus has done. It means that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less because you are united with Christ and the same delight that God has in the son he has in you as a son or a, or a daughter adopted into his family. And it's not only this wonderful news that we are now defined by what Jesus has done. It's this wonderful freedom we have that Paul describes in verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, not to prove himself to God, but rather because God had proved himself faithful. Yet not I, he says, but Christ in me. Yet another confirmation that Jesus is alive and well, active in our lives even today. You know, this clean breaks can, can sometimes be hard to get our heads around. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who was a Canadian citizen, uh, was becoming an American citizen, and I went to his citizenship ceremony. Some of you have been to citizenship uh, ceremonies before, and you know there's this, kind of this wonderful moment. There's all these different people there, uh, all of them from different parts of the world, and all of them in, in a way making a clean break with one identity and forming a new identity. Now, my Canadian friend uh, still said things like a, eh, and still, you know, still called a hat a toque and all that stuff, so he, you know, we never quite got that out of him. But the fact is, in that moment, he went from being identified as a citizen of one country to being identified as a citizen of a new one. And in a similar way, what Paul is de uh, describing for us here and modeling for us here is that because of the resurrection, we really have a new identity. There's a clean break between who we were and who we are. Now, we're gonna talk much more about this in the week, weeks ahead, but let me just summarize and close with this. What Paul is saying here is basically this. The resurrection is true. And thank God, the resurrection is true. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance it gives us that we belong to you, body and soul. 
We thank you for raising us with Christ and one day that we will be together with you forever. We ask now, Lord, that the reality of the resurrection would be ours all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.